0: podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Robert Thomas, a consultant oncologist and visiting professor of biological and exercise science at Coventry University. Professor Thomas's research focuses on nutritional, lifestyle and self-help strategies and how this can be integrated into routine cancer care. He's also the author of How to Live, a book that provides evidence-based advice on keeping fit, healthy and free of illness. Today we're discussing the role that exercise plays in cancer prevention, the relationship between exercise and oxidative stress and the importance of building up exercise gradually, and we're also touching on some of the nutritional considerations for active individuals. Hello, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on on the podcast.
1: You're very welcome, looking forward to it.
0: Um, so I discovered you uh, this summer when I was reading your book and, and learning lots about the, the research and the, the work that you've been doing. But just for the benefits uh, of our listeners who may not have heard of your book before, would you mind just introducing yourself um, and also just sharing a little bit about your your book too? Uh,
1: so I'm a, a mainstream consultant oncologist based in Addenbrook, Cambridge, Bedford. Uh, but I'm also uh, quite unusual, I suppose, that I'm a professor of sports and nutritional medicine Uh, based in the University of Bedfordshire and I lead a research laboratory, um, a clinical laboratory looking at uh, studies uh, mainly to do with lifestyle, exercise, nutrition and how we can uh, prove to the world how beneficial they are and how important that is in the the sort of mainstream management of patients with cancer and and other chronic diseases Uh, but also to sort of design randomised trials, evidence reviews, Uh, to find out which things we should do and which things we shouldn't do. So uh, based on that research for the last sort of 25 years, in fact, when we started this, it wasn't trendy to talk about exercise and diet, but now it is, thank goodness. Uh, We've sort of put it together, or I've put it together, and um, with other evidence from around the world, of course, and and put it into the book, How to Live. Excuse the title. It was the publishers, not me who chose that. Um, But basically, it's a sort of... um, it's a summary of what lifestyle factors mean what how they influence the body you know how they influence the biological process which affect disease and how we feel on a daily basis such as fatigue cognitive function and the risk of chronic disease including cancer and then the evidence of which which lifestyle strategies are the most effective so, you know, when should you exercise? How much should you exercise? What type of exercise should you do? Um, you know, what nutrition should you eat to support exercise or at other times, uh, you know, ranging from how to avoid carcinogens or pro-inflammatory toxins in the environment and things like that. So hopefully it's, a, it's an interpretation of the research, but written in a, in a lay, easily, hopefully easily readable format. Very much helped by the publishers on that one, I'd have to say. Uh, so it gives people just a practical uh, single source of information which they can refer to and um, hopefully get practical guidance on a day-to-day basis.
0: I'm I'm interested how much has that information and the research you've done actually shaped your own lifestyle choices? Because some of the things I read and I was quite surprised or shocked by. But actually, you know, a a week later, you might not be kind of changing your habits as as much as you'd hoped. So I was just wondering um, how much of those changes do you implement in your own life? And is there things that you find that you slip up on?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You you say you write these things for your patients and your general public. But of course, you know, I'm interested Mm -hmm. in them as well. I'm I'm getting getting older and I want to uh, keep as healthy as I can for as long as I can. So, yeah, there's a lot of things, especially... For example, sugar, you know, five years ago, we didn't think it was that bad. Um, You know, I pretty much dramatically changed how I eat processed sugar. You know, I will maybe have a little bit after a meal or something as a treat, but I pretty much avoid it any other times of the day, avoid snacking, things like that. I mean, that was just came out from the research, which uh, not so much our research, but research from around the world showing how harmful it is. You know, things like, uh, well, probably going back 15 years ago, I'd never even heard of a polyphenol or a phytochemical. And now, um, you know, I'm very conscious about looking at foods which have a broad spectrum of these really healthy gifts from nature. So I've dramatically increased those, reduced meat intake. So I'd like to think what I'm doing, you know, I'm not just preaching at other people. I'm sort of, I'm on the same path as everyone else reading it. you know and also the, the the practical things we don't want to live in a bubble um you know the the proverb you know it, it just seems like we're living longer because because its life is boring i want you know people to enjoy life i want to enjoy life so looking at the evidence for alcohol which i you know i enjoy a nice glass of wine but you know looking at the types of alcohol when you should have it um what you should have it with um I like doing lots of sport outdoors, including windsurfing and kitesurfing and running and cycling. So I get a lot of sun exposure, but looking at ways to reduce my risk for getting cancer, which hopefully uh, will, you know, be relevant to other people. Uh, so yeah, I'm quite selfish like that. I was looking to say, you know, what polyphenols I could have before going out on a windsurfer and exposing myself to midday sun in the Mediterranean. What can I do after sun exposure to reduce the risk of skin premature ageing and, and, and cancers? So, yeah, I mean, I very much did that for, for my own um, benefit, but hopefully that will benefit other people as well.
0: And you mentioned earlier on that um, your clinical work is as an oncologist, so dealing with uh, patients that have been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I was just wondering, the the field of research in terms of oncology is so vast. What was it all those years ago that attracted you Specifically, to look at the lifestyle factors, especially when maybe that wasn't the most popular or trendy thing to be researching at the time?
1: Um, Yeah, well, back in when I first became a consultant, I think it was 1994 or something like that. I mean, those were the days where you just got, you know, thousands of patients uh, who were just didn't have a clue what was going on. There was no, there was not even information materials back then. So the first thing we wanted to do is sort of empower patients so they were better informed and they were able to um, share the decision making with the, with the doctors and so we did some research back then showing first of all that better informed patients have less anxiety and um, you know better outcomes actually um, so that that was the initial setting just talking about information and then it became fairly routine you know when you go when you get a diagnosis now you get lots of very helpful leaflets and everyone singing from the same hymn tune it's it's a lot easier So from that sort of basis, I then moved over to say, well, it wasn't so much information about their medical options. It was more information about their self-help strategies, what they could do to help themselves. And that was a little bit um, confusing for many patients. And it still is actually at time, mainly due to information overload rather than deficit. So then we moved into um, you know, what patients want or how much information they want. Do they want information about diet or exercise? And, yeah, it was pretty obvious most people did want to know what they could do to help themselves. So uh, then it led to opening up uh, relationships with, say, Coventry University, Nottingham University in Bedford and Cambridge itself. Uh, you know, trying to design studies to, to find out, for example, how much, how much exercise people are doing. We, we found out it was not much. Uh, what the barriers to exercise, um, you know, how we could then change behaviour. So it's not just a simple case of saying to people, you need to exercise. It's it's about having to um, get the message over that it, it really is important and it's not just some quacky lone doctor harping on about it. Uh, and that involved educating your colleagues as well, you know, and 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 the nurses and the doctors around you, anyone in the pathway for that patient. So all that re- required, you know, research to, to see if it's cost effective, if it d- does change behaviour, and you know, we've been doing that for twenty five years, as you say. So it's it's now more recently become um, more noticeable and more recognised as important, which is which is good.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something that's had a bit more acknowledgement in recent years, and I think the importance of keeping active and reducing our sedentary behaviour is getting more and more airtime, which is really positive. Um, but even even myself with a kind of interest in this area, I was quite surprised at some of the things that I read in your book and some of the statistics. So for example, um, 40% of bowel cancers could be prevented with physical activity, for example, obviously, that's an estimation but it's a it's a huge number, and just shows the significance that physical activity can play in terms of cancer prevention. So, would you be able to explain how exercise acts to reduce cancer risk? And I guess it would also be helpful to know um, how much do we actually know about this area, and is there still lots of research that we need to be doing?
1: Uh, we know a lot of them. I'm sure there's lots we don't know as well. Um, Yeah, I mean, those are estimates based on, you know, CRUK issue figures now and again saying probably about 50% of cancers could be preventable. I would say a bit more because they only look at the big things, um, you know. um, And, you know, and it's also important to get over at this stage, we're not blaming someone for getting cancer. You can live the life of an angel and you you could still get it. So, you know, it's just about lowering the odds. And that's all we can do. You know, we can... uh, you know, we can lower our risks. Um, so in terms of the biological pathways, um, which happen after exercise, we've just written, we've written four evidence reviews. Um, the latest one with Stacy Kenfield from um, California, who's head of the Health Professional Follow-Up Study, which is the largest study in America looking at exercise. And it was written also with Rob Newman from um, Perth in Australia, who's, who's supposedly the guru of exercise in Australia. So Together we identified about one hundred and eighty biochemical changes which happen after a good exercise session. Most of them are beneficial. So if you want them, you know, if you want the full remit of that, you need to read the paper. The latest one is in the British Medical Bulletin. I can send you the links to any of your uh, viewers if you want. But in a nutshell, I suppose um, you know you have to go through. There's the there's the direct benefits and the sort of non-direct benefits. So the non-direct benefits would be it helps you lose weight. You go out in the sun, you improve your vitamin D levels. If you're exercising in the morning, it improves circadian rhythm. Uh, it also reduces, uh, uh, increases endorphin, reduces serotonin, so improves your mood. And we know that mood actually independently can increase, low mood can increase the risk of cancer and relapse. And then we have the direct biochemical pathways as it um It's actually an antioxidant, it it increases your antioxidant enzymes, it improves um, oxidative efficiency, it reduces inflammation slightly, I mean, it increases it while you're doing the exercise, but in the long term, it reduces inflammation. It improves gut health, we know that it it increases the profile of healthy to unhealthy bacteria. There's uh, another thing called epigenetics. Now, that means the genes we're born with, some people are worse than others, but it's not always true that if you have a bad gene, you can't alter the expression of that gene and how it influences the pathways which cause cancer. And, and um, so we know that um, exercise has an epigenetic effect on the, on the bad genes we've been born, born with. So it improves the uh, expression of the genes we are born with. And there's it, it some you know, direct anti-proliferative properties as well. Um, but you know those are the ones... in in a nutshell
0: and i suppose that that focuses on the prevention of um cancer and other many other health conditions but for patients that either already have a health condition whether that's cancer or or something else um what are the benefits of starting or continuing exercise through that diagnosis and, and through their treatment
1: um absolutely i mean fortunately um Pretty much the same lifestyle mechanisms which help prevent cancer are, are the same as the ones which will help cancer relapse. So after cancer, you've got to split up exercise benefits into two categories. One would be to improve well-being and reduce side effects. So, you know, the obvious thing is it reduces the risk of uh, thromboembolism um, and surgical complications. So that's why there's a big drive for prehabilitation now. If you're due for your operation, try to exercise beforehand. Um, and then, if you if you're having chemotherapy, for example, it's well known that pretty intense exercise, if you if you can manage it, will reduce the risk of uh, neutropenic sepsis, peripheral neuropathy. Um, your hemoglobin, for example, doesn't drop as much. Fatigue is is better. So, and the same applies to radiotherapy. It reduces the risk of long term radiotherapy changes. Um, more and more we're treating patients with with hormones and um and biological treatments. And these biological treatments recruit the immune system to recognize a cancer as foreign and attack it. So one thing exercise does, as I've just said, through inflammation and oxidative stress, they improve the function of those categories. So they help, they help the um they help these biological treatments actually work. Um, So, um, you know, a lot of these are, are, I've got lots of toxicities as well, particularly lung toxicity, so it helps lung capacity. So, um, you know, there's numerous trials to say if you exercise after cancer, you have less fatigue, you have less joint pains, you've got better mood, you don't gain as much weight, you have less surgical chemotherapy and radiotherapy complications. So it's pretty much a no-brainer that we should be integrating exercise into mainstream management. It shouldn't be just an add-on or an afterthought. I mean, there is one hospital called Genesis, which is a private hospital where there's 13 units throughout the whole of UK. They've actually built a gym and have exercise professionals in the oncology unit. So if you go for your radiotherapy, you actually go to the gym for 20 minutes first. And the same applies to chemotherapy. And that's brilliant. That that should be the model for the NHS, but of course, um, there are funding issues, but I think it'd be cost effective, but that needs to be proven.
0: With your experience in the NHS, how do you um, use the, sh- the short time that you have with patients to encourage physical activity? Because th- these patients are going through a very difficult time and that might understandably be the last thing on their mind. So if you picked up anything over, over your time in clinical practice that you found particularly motivating or particularly helpful for patients?
1: Um, yeah, most people, you know, want want to do things which will help themselves. So if you're complaining of of, of nausea or um, peripheral neuropathy during chemotherapy, I mean, pretty much, apart from the medication which we can adjust, and that, that's a sort of a given. Um, so you know, that's quite simple. You say to the patient, "You've got nausea. I'm going to change your medication, try and improve it. In the meantime, other things which can improve it is you know." Exercising first in the morning, etc. Same with peripheral neuropathy. In fact, peripheral neuropathy, for example, there isn't any medical treatments for it. The only two things which have been shown to help are, is acupuncture and exercise. So, I think it's perfectly justified to spend five minutes talking about those things. Um, you know, if if they don't want to, then do it. That's 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 more difficult. But most people would try to do some. Um, and I do a lot of active surveillance for prostate cancer, uh, and you know, it's, it's, the consultation is usually your PSA is this, your MRI shows this, so that's going to take 30 seconds. But what we do know in men on active surveillance, there's a lot of things with diet, polyphenol-rich foods, exercise, vitamin D in, in the winter, which have a significant impact on their risk of progression. <laughs> and will prevent many patients ever needing radiotherapy or surgery. So, you know, I think, you know, spending five minutes prioritising those is, is, is time well spent. Um, so I don't find it a problem, to be honest.
0: That That's really good to hear and hopefully something that um, many other doctors up and down the country are doing so that we can all provide a, a consistent message. I was just wondering um, if you ever use or advocate for the use of um, exercise prescriptions or maybe certain sent- patient groups having supervised exercise programs
1: no that's a very good question um, back here probably 15 years ago um, I there was no uh, level 4 qualification in in cancer rehab for example so we actually developed a program at, at Bedford and Cambridge and uh, actually designed the level 4 exercise uh, qualification Um uh, and then uh, put that through Skills Active. It was an enormous process. It took three years. The first exercise uh, uh, qualification, level four cancer qualification, was done in Bedford Hospital. We we trained uh, 10 exercise professionals. And now there are three companies doing it. It's all over Britain. And uh, I would recommend, if possible, uh, not, not necessarily, but if possible, if you have cancer, and you do get a personal trainer would be to use some a, a personal trainer who has got a level four qualification because they do have a bit more insight in what you've been through etc. But it's not a, it's not a foregone you know it's not an absolute it's just a, just a requirement. So you know we always say you have to look at the, the the targets for exercise. If you want to lose weight, you have to do more cardiovascular stuff. If you want to improve bone density, it has to be weight bearing etc. And a good exercise professional will. Recognize what your goals and targets are, and and individualize a regime for you. Um, so you know that that is important. But you know if you don't have access to one, you know any exercise is better than no exercise or group classes. Uh, but but ideally, that's what uh, I would uh, you know strongly recommend. Perfect.
0: Thank you. Um, and. Now I just wanted to, to ask you a few questions that we kind of touched on earlier in terms of the antioxidant effect of exercise. So I was just wondering if you could explain what the relationship is between exercise and oxidative stress and how this changes depending on how much you're exerting yourself or how familiar you are with that exercise.
1: I mean, this is something when I when I wrote the book, I, I spent a long time, probably a couple of months, getting my head around and speaking to various experts. And it's uh, it, it can be quite confusing, and the press always get it wrong. You know, they they they, they always, the headlines are always misleading. So basically, as you as you remember from your Krebs cycle, your energy producing biochemical pathways in our body, uh, you know, we we take sugar, ketones, and and proteins and things, we break those down into uh, into energy forming units. Now, as as a side effect of that, or, or maybe it's not a side effect, but as a consequence of that we produce free radicals. So the more exercise or more energy we use, so that could include being overweight, for example, um, we produce more free radicals. Now, these free radicals, very highly energised units, which uh, spin around the cell and and cause damage to tissues, including our DNA. And if if a free radical cleaves that DNA, um, most of the time, the repair mechanisms heal it again, that's why you need uh, a good dna repair mechanism but if it doesn't and it it, uh, it could then go on to either kill the cell which isn't so bad but more worryingly the cell could then start dividing with those genetic mutations those cleaves in the dna and that uh, that uh, a rearrangement of dna could put cancer suppressor genes next to cancer progrowth genes and that's when cancer starts So, you know, uh, anything which cleaves DNA, which could be direct radiation, it could be sunlight, it could be direct pollution or free radicals are harmful. So you could then say, well, if excise produces more free radicals, why is it not harmful? Well, of course, excise does, you know, 180 other good things, which you have to balance uh, aside. And we do actually need some free radicals. So it's not actually true that they're all bad. They're actually used for apoptosis to to kill the cell when we want it to, for example. Uh, And when you develop free radicals, you then develop, uh, there's like a negative feedback or intercellular feedback, which increases your antioxidant enzymes to cope with these extra free radicals. There's a bit of a delay in that. So if we go for a run this morning uh, and it's quite gentle and and within your sort of, you don't feel exhausted, Your antioxidant enzymes will just increase and it will deal with the excess in free radicals. And when the free radicals drop, those uh, antioxidant enzymes will drop as well. So there's a balance. If you were just to say, I want to do the marathon tomorrow without any training, of course, you would exhaust yourself. You'd create an enormous amount of free radicals and your antioxidant enzymes wouldn't have been upregulated in time. So that would actually cause more harm than good. And that's why a regulated increasing training programs important, not just for your muscles and joints and everything else, but also for the intracellular oxidative process. It's also very important to think of what else can improve your your antioxidant enzymes. And they would be um, having, having the right amount of nutrients in your body, zinc, copper, magnesium, selenium, things like that, which are required for these enzymes. But also the polyphenols, things like cherries, uh, pomegranate, turmeric, tea, the polyphenols encourage the formation of antioxidant enzymes. They're not actually direct antioxidants like the press keep on saying they are. In fact, they do often help to, to down-regulate the enzymes as well, uh, the antioxidant enzymes, and when, when, when we don't need them. So they improve antioxidant efficiency. There are some things, however, which are direct antioxidants, and they'd be things like vitamin A and vitamin E. And there are studies which have given vitamin A and vitamin E, and they've shown there's too much antioxidant pathway. So you get an antioxidant stress, which is a play on words. But in other words, it's mopping up too many free radicals. And it prevents the upregulation of the natural enzymes. So before exercise, it's very important to take, you know, as a, a very broad colourful diet you know I say that polyphenols are in foods which give it its colour its smell and its taste so anything like berries herbs and spices fruit and veg uh, it's really important to make sure when you start an exercise pump to have those to support the antioxidant pathway as well as all the other things you need like vitamins minerals and 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 fibre etc.
0: Is there any research to suggest the best timing for taking those polyphenols on board? So you mentioned that during exercise, we're increasing the free radicals and we need the antioxidants to mop those up afterwards. So is it useful to take on the polyphenols after exercise to help with that process? Or is it just more about having a a generally good diet day in, day out?
1: I think the most important is a generally good diet because, um, you know, you you do store some of these things. Um, Um... of course, if you're going to go for a session, you see you see people in gyms now sipping tea and things like that, which is which is good. You hear cyclists going out and having a handful of uh, cherries and blackberries uh, or beetroot, which I think I think it's a good idea. I would I would tend to do it before, if you can, if if you if you, unless you want to exercise on an empty stomach, which is good if you're worried about diabetes or if you're overweight, but. Um, generally be before so if you're going to go on a sort of cycling sportif and cycle 150 miles like these mad uh, cyclists do um you know i would you know make sure your breakfast for example is packed full of these things and in these super extreme athletes or, or even you know mad people like me i suppose who go off and do sport sportifs and there's many doctors and various people around the country who do quite intense exercise weekend warriors we call them um, You know, I would take an extra supplement, to be honest. So if there's a supplement with sort of cherries, beetroot, uh, pomegranate, if it's well made and it's not been superheated and things like that, it doesn't have any vitamin A and vitamin E. And there is a role for that. And there's plenty of studies now being published to show that a good quality uh, supplement of that character uh, can improve exercise performance and reduce exercise induced oxidative stress.
0: Okay, that that's really interesting to know. So I guess in, in summary of the, those key points would be to make sure your exercise is graduated. So you're doing exercise that your body is accustomed to so that your body is prepared for the free radicals that are produced. Um, and in those people doing lots of exercise and for general health as well, just try to increase polyphenols. And if you're doing particularly high amounts of exercise, a uh, a well-made supplement might be beneficial too.
1: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So for example... You know i exercise two or three times a week but if i was going to do a sportif or if one of my patients can do this i would say look in the in the in the, in the five days before you before you do that really increase your intake and and as you say a, a supplement in 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 that setting um but just just on one point i, I forgot to mention is is the importance of gut health as well mm-hmm. um i i we talked about polyphenols but there is actually emerging evidence now that uh Um, You know, making sure you have a diet which improves your gut health with lots of sort of bacterial rich foods like kefir and kimchi. I would also suggest perhaps a probiotic, um, something like your gut plus, which is just a lactobacillus one um, before an exercise session because uh, having a poor gut health can can increase inflammation and oxidative stress. So that's another thing we should uh, pay some attention to
0: excellent thank you and just one final question uh, and you you touched on it uh when we were speaking just then about the the timing of exercise and food and how exercising before a meal is more beneficial than exercising after a meal so i'm just wondering if you could um, just expand on that
1: um yeah i mean it's a, if you're sort of normal build and you or you're worried about weight loss and obviously you've got to just eat eat as much as you can, and you've got to preload your carbs before an exercise session. But if you're overweight or uh, got borderline diabetes and things, there's quite a bit of evidence now that uh, you know exercising on an empty stomach, either first thing in the morning, which many people find difficult, or say before your lunch, uh, would be a good one. Um, you know that actually does reverse uh, improve insulin sensitivity because you start using up the calories in your. In your liver initially, and then your in your fat stores, Um, and it's been shown to you know reduce uh, fatty liver. It's been shown to reduce um the risk of diabetes and insulin insensitivity so um, you know and but it's hard work i mean many people find that a bit alien thinking you've got to exercise on an empty stomach but your body can cope with that i mean when we were a caveman of course we went running after an antelope we probably had an empty stomach didn't we because that's why you're running after him <laughs> so we are able to cope with uh, our fat stores that's what it's there for
0: excellent thank you so much that's been um really really interesting are there any final comments that you uh, wanted to make or wanted to share
1: uh, no, I think, um, you know, just try to do as much as you can. But, uh, you know, don't beat yourself up if you if you can't. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just uh, reducing your odds.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Many thanks to Professor Robert Thomas for joining me on this episode. If you want to learn more about the topic, then there's a chapter dedicated to exercise in his book, How to Live. And lots of the topics we discussed today are also covered in more detail at cancernet.co.uk. For more podcast episodes, you can head to marathonmedic.com and I'll be back in the next few weeks with a new episode discussing more about physical activity and health with Dr. John Sykes. Thank you so much for listening.